The Third Men Podcast is a fan-made, not-for-profit, just-for-fun celebration of Jack White and is in no way directly affiliated with Third Man Records or the man himself. For the definitive history of Jack White and his music, please consult your local Jack White. And for everyone else looking for a home, you found one here, in a place so seedy. Enjoy! to ghetto recorders now this is uh where a lot of the uh bands that everyone in in europe knows about as far as the detroit scene goes this is where a lot of them record at or mix their recordings at this is this is jim diamond studio yes I need more snare in the headphones. Where's my snare? All right, all right, turning it up now. I'm cranking it all the way up. Now, That's as much snare as I can give you. I'm still, I can't hear it. I can't hear it. I turned it from one to I'm two. Tell, That's I'm as much... telling you I can't hear the snare. Okay. I James? think I found a three on the dial. James? Oh, my God, there's a ten on this dial? James? I can hear the snare now. It's it's all snare I, now. James, James, got, I can't I can't see the snare in the control room. Can you find? You want snare? more snare? I I don't see it on the floor. I I know we're trying to catch these animals. I can't see the snare. James, can, can, James, can you um, can you can you get a technician down here and lay out, lay out the snare? Yeah, I'll lay out the snare uh, and I'll hey, James. I'll wrangle in a really nice really nice bass. Hey James. Yeah. I can't yeah. feel my hair. Where's my hair? <laughs> I'll turn up your hair. I'll turn up the hair. James, where's my hair? I, I can't. I still can't feel it. James, I'm gonna need more hair. Hey, we need more hair. More hair in here, please. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, they're coming with the hair. Um, yeah. No, it's no problem. It's the least I can do. Uh, they're bringing in all the hair they can. Truckloads upon truckloads of hair. They're gonna paste it all over the microphone, I guess. James, isn't this supposed to be a duet? No. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna need more share. <laughs> I'm gonna need more share in the headphones, please, James. James. Turn turn the share up. 
fuck no. I'm turning the chair down. <laughs> this was a producer producer joke thing. Hi. Hi. This has been a winner of an intro. Yep. Welcome to our show, I guess. Welcome to the Third Men Podcast. I am your co-host, Paul Kaminsky. We did all that we could to welcome you by doing this dumb skit. Yes, I'm your other co-host, James Kaminsky. This is a Jack White History podcast. And James, this week we have a very, yeah. very special episode. You know, sometimes on the show we talk to real live actual people that have had something to do with Jack's music or know him in some capacity or actually interact in some meaningful way. James, I think the past couple interviews have been crazy. This one just, it's key, it keeps getting crazier, James. It keeps getting crazier. Mind is blown, Paul. My mind is out the window. And it's great when you guys can listen to something other than us two schmucks talk about a turkey overlord or Midwestern Brooklynite mother of famous rock star Pokey Lafarge. So it's really nice that you can listen to some cool new people. And this interview is by far among the coolest. Paul, we're very proud to present today's episode. Yes, today we are presenting an extended interview with White Stripes producer, singer, songwriter, multi-instrumentalist, Detroit rock legend, Dirt Bomb, Beat a Sonic, Way Out, member of so many groups, Mr. Jim Diamond. I can hear that diamond sparkle. I'm already regretting that joke. Uh, (laughs) Mr. Jim Diamond is on the program today. We're very excited for it. He talked with us for a long time, much like most of our guests who are very generous with their time talking with us. I mean it when I say I don't get it. I don't get why they spend so much time talking to us. I don't get why they agreed to it in the first place. I'm very grateful for it. But they keep saying yes, and they keep talking to us. I can't explain it, but I love it. And we're so thrilled and honored to have Jim on the show. I mean, I, I know that first White Stripes album, Back to Front, ever since you know I got it when we were younger. And to actually hear and talk to the guy that helped shape that album was an incredible experience. Yeah, and super humble, super nice guy. Quite an interview, and I hope you guys enjoy it. We'll be getting to that shortly. But before we get to all of that, Paul... Is there something we should be telling? Yes, indeed. This is Every Single One's Got a Story to Tell. Yeah, James, every single one's got a story to tell is the portion of the show where people write in and tell us the different Jack experiences they've had or experiences with third man records related acts and things like that. And this is sort of a continuation from last week, James, because people who listen to the episode 58, thank you, Jack White, 2017 Thanksgiving spectacular sponsored by Carl Butterball brand turkeys will remember that listener of the show, Rain Prosper, detailed in that episode meeting Jack at the Barnes and Noble. We are going to be friends signing in New York City several weeks back, as did we detail my experience meeting him along with Joe Lalich the week prior in Los Angeles. But Rain isn't the only listener to the show, James, that attended that signing in New York City a few weeks back. Do you know who else it was, James? I James in attendance at that signing was none other than we see you over there, Eileen Corsano. Oh, very nice. Yes, and Eileen reached out to us on Twitter and let us know that she had seen the signing as well and sent some really cool pictures. Like, if you want to go to at Third Men Cast Twitter page, you can check out these photos of Eileen and Jack interacting. I see those photos over there, Eileen. 
<laughs> yes. She said it was like being in a dream state. And she said that she told him that she saw him at the Sunseeker show and his eyes got wide and he smiled a big smile as if he remembered. Uh, then a little boy came up to have his book signed and Jack told Eileen that she loved her hair in that moment. And there's a great photo here of him sort of looking at her hair. And it's really, really cool. By the way, her profile picture on Twitter is her with Alison Mossart. So she's just batting a thousand these days, Eileen. <laughs> I'm very happy about that. And there's another person who attended that New York City book signing. And that would be also Ms. Callie Durga, a.k.a. Tam, who was there as well who has a lot of cool insight and stuff about that signing. James, did you did you know Callie was there? I had heard about it after we had podcasted, actually. I had read that she was there, and yeah, it's upsetting. I could have met all of you guys. I could have actually seen you over there, Eileen, and, you know, been in, <laughs> been in real, real human space with some of you folks, but... Um, in the meat space. The gross-sounding meat space. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm glad you guys got to see him, and it sounds like you guys had a great time. Yeah, Kelly points out something that kind of bothers me, which is that a couple of brave fans at the New York City signing brought up other merch to have signed other than the We're Gonna Be Friends book, which made me a little sad that I didn't just brave it and give him the record of the Third Men podcast in that moment. But I was, they let me tell you, they made me very paranoid that they were going to take it from me. But uh, I'm looking at a photo Callie posted here of a little boy with a vinyl copy of Elephant, which Jack appears as though he is going to be signing. So I guess good for that little boy. I mean, it could be the fact that this was a different store than the one you were at being in New York and versus LA. Yeah. My head slightly different rules or it could have been the fact that this was a small child uh and they didn't want to (laughs) rip an album out of this small child's hands so it's one of those probably Mm -hmm. yeah it's probably that but we're really happy that y'all got to go there and experience that and uh, you know in a time with not a lot of direct jack white things fans can interact with this is uh, certainly one of those things uh, Callie also fortunate enough to have been at that concert in that underground cave in Tennessee. Oh, yeah. About a month ago in which Jack sort of, not emceed, but he showed up and uh, Lily Mae Rishi played and uh, Marco Price played. And... and apparently he was presented with some kind of desiccated bat. I really want to <laughs> know the story behind that. So... um so we'll have to yeah. we'll have to get Callie on the show again and uh, and talk about that also at some point. Absolutely, but uh, anyway, that's been every single one's got a story to tell. Yeah, and they did. All right, James. We're going to get into this interview here. There's a lot to cover. We hope you all enjoy this. I got to say, uh, when you're listening to the interview, take note of some of the bands that Jim points out because there are a few here that I wound up getting more into, uh, you know, sort of just based on him talking to. Not only the stuff he worked on, which would be sort of later in the interview, but he also talks about some of his influences. And for instance, Shocking Blue is a group that I had just never really heard of other than that song Venus and wound up really, really loving. So, Hmm. look, this guy is a music treasure trove. We were just trying to be sponges and pick his brain and mix all kind of metaphors and learn as much as we could. And without further ado, James, I think we're going to get into it here. Let's sit down and absorb this interview. Let's absorb this man, James. (laughs) 
we'd like to welcome our third man for this week, Jim Diamond. Uh, it's just hitting me that I'm talking with Jim Diamond right now. Holy sh! Uh, welcome to the show, Jim. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's amazing to have you here. Thank you so much for coming on the show. We have many questions, many, many, many questions. <laughs> Not a problem. We're excited uh, to hear some stories. But how are you today? How's it going? I'm doing okay. I'm just uh, needed a little coffee to perk me up. It's like 4:41 here, so. You know, going out tonight to see a, a good band <laughs> Ooh. in town. Nice. Um, called Le Lulis, kind of young punk rock. Ah. They're good. Good band. That's awesome. Nice. Yeah, I think all three of us are on coffee time right now. Uh. Yeah, I'm, I'm back. On. I was on coffee time, had lunch. Now I'm back on coffee time. Yep. So. Yep, yep. Well, the uh, very early hours of Los Angeles uh, says hello to you as well. Oh yeah. Uh, I see some. Uh, <laughs> I see some derelicts outside that are recovering from last night's Halloween parties. And uh, I'll say hello. <laughs> All right, good. <laughs> so we have you on the show here. We're thrilled to be talking with you. You know, folks at home listening know that you have a long musical career. And obviously, you were there sort of at the birth of the White Stripes. And, and so we'll, we'll sort of get to that in a little bit. But I kind of wanted to start with your own musical influences growing up. You're a multi-instrumentalist. You're a singer. You're a songwriter. But who were the people that inspired you when you were a kid to want to pursue music as a career? Oh, when I was a little kid, um, I had the good fortune of, you know, I was born in 1965. So I started to get recognizing music, like being conscious of good music when I was about four or five. And I had their older kids down the street and they, had, they played Beatles records for me. They played <laughs> Led Zeppelin. They played Steppenwolf. They played Jefferson Airplane. They played... Uh, you know, all the hard rock, and uh, I heard all this stuff, and CCR, that was another one, is huge. Nice. I loved CCR when I was four years old. So, cool. I was pretty lucky, I, uh, you know, had the older kids, and um, and my grandmother would, I'd say, hey, can you buy me this, uh, can you get me Fortunate Son by CCR? And she would <laughs> she would buy me these 45s, I still have them. <laughs> She'd buy That's me awesome. these 45s, and I remember, I really liked uh, the Shocking Blue you know, in 1970. I got to hear the stuff when I got to hear some really good stuff as it was coming out, and I was conscious of it. And uh, but probably the biggest influence were uh, the Beatles right. um, when I was good. What's your sweet spot for Beatles? Um, Everybody's I'd got one, except for me I'd, and my monkey. So come on. <laughs> yeah, I'd say I don't know. I mean, I like some stuff post Revolver, but my favorite Beatles stuff is pre Sergeant Pepper's. Then they start okay. to lose okay. me after that. Say about 
But I like all the early stuff, and I like the mid-60s stuff. But, you know, it was, it was all that stuff. I heard it, and I loved it, and uh, I just felt like, wow, you know, even as a little kid. So it was in there. Yeah. I can imagine the psychedelic stuff not quite resonating with a child, necessarily. Uh, but <laughs> yeah. Revolver Rubber Soul stuff can definitely, uh, similar to Jack White, I think even the photographer Autumn DeWild mentions that Beatles music and, and White Stripes music uh, have a similar resonation with kids because it's got a you know a really pretty simple beat yeah true mm-hmm. yeah it's it's like natural for kids to enjoy it true true were your parents musical or is was it no. something you discovered so it was no. it was more like schoolyard kind of thing yeah it was just you know i heard stuff and went wow i gotta hear more of this you know my parents weren't playing beatles records for me they were they were playing the ray conniff singers and uh <laughs> you know stuff like that <laughs> Stan nice. Kenton, I think. Stan Kenton was as wild as they got. Okay. All right. Understood. <laughs> <laughs> so through those musical influences, you picked up many instruments and many different kinds of songwriting techniques. Which instrument did you pick up first? Was it, uh, you know, guitar, bass? Did you sing first? What was the first thing you gravitated towards? My parents had a home organ. Oh. You know, this is back in the day. And I'd fool around, you know, and I took, I'd figure out the chords. And I was probably seven or eight. And I started figuring, I never learned how to play it well, but I, I, would, I learned the chords, I knew what all the notes were, and uh, then I wanted to play guitar, I was about eight, and my parents got me a little classical guitar, and I took some classical guitar nice. lessons, and ah. then I played the sax, yeah, saxophone came up when I was about ten, that was school band. Jeez. <laughs> uh, uh, you were a busy kid. <laughs> I just wanted to play, and then, uh, you know, there was more guitar lessons, and then uh, I remember a kid down the street said... Hey man, we're gonna start a band. We need a bass player, and I was probably thir- twelve or thirteen. I said, "Hey, I want a bass." I told my dad, and he said, "Well, you know, I'll buy you a bass, but you got to mow the lawn." I had to do. It was like a summer of lawn mowing. <laughs> oh my god! To pay off the bass. Oh man! And um, I did it, and he bought me the bass. So you said, to hell with that, I'm not going to be a bass player. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like every story of every person who plays bass is somebody asked that they needed a bassist. And I said, I guess I'll have to pick up the bass now. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I actually wanted to play the bass. I actually wanted to. Because, I, I mean, I played the guitar and the bass simultaneously for years. Mm. So it was like both. And uh, I would go, sometimes I'd play bass in a band, sometimes I'd play guitar. But I was more, mm. I guess I was more of a natural on the bass. Really? Yeah. I mean, and also, if your musical so, influences were 60s acts and, and early 70s stuff, like Jack Bruce, Paul McCartney, like there's a lot of famous bass players coming out of that era. So it probably didn't hurt to have those people to, to look to. No, I mean, and all the Motown stuff I heard too growing up in Detroit. I mean, oh, yeah. that was, you just heard that all the time. So you heard James Jamerson. I mean, mm-hmm. from uh, as a little kid, you're indoctrinated indoctr- with uh, Motown on the radio. Right. There's far too many of you dying You know we've got to find a way To bring some love in here today 
Yeah, I'm sure that was surrounding you all, all the time at oh, that point surrounding in, you. in history. You know, Motown was... Yeah. Yeah, it was everywhere. Yeah, but. definitely. So when did you start writing songs? Was it around that same time? or I guess that sort of goes hand in hand with what your sort of early band iterations were, because we, I guess we all kind of have those really early band iterations. But I'm wondering when, you, when the songwriting started for you. Probably sometime in high school. I think I had, I had, a, I had a girlfriend and I wrote a song. Mm-hmm. I remember I wrote a, I probably like the first good song, I was like 17, and I wrote a song influenced by this, this girlfriend I had, and uh, that came out pretty good. I, like, we actually did a recording of it uh, later on. Oh, nice. But um, yeah, I started probably some, I mean, I'm not, I don't consider myself a songwriter at all. I don't sit around and work on my craft. I, right. <laughs> you know, sometimes I feel like, ah, I'll write something. And, but it's, it's not often. I don't work at it. It just kind of happens. If it happens, great. If it doesn't, it doesn't. What was the song, if you don't mind me asking? You said you did a recording of it? It was called I Want to Love You But I Can't Not Right Now. Okay. <laughs> I think it's on I think it's on the I made a recording in college. According in the, I had this band, the Beatlesonics, that you met that will yeah. you mentioned. Yeah, we did a recording of it. Yeah, some I wrote when I was seventeen. Nice, That's awesome. That's a lot more successful than the song I wrote about a girl I liked. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, I, I think I saw that thing you do and said, "Oh, that can't be that hard." Uh, and, yeah, exactly. And it was <laughs> spent an afternoon furiously <laughs> scribbling. Um, well, that's awesome. So, so you're you're bouncing around a lot of bands. You're steeped in music. Were you in Detroit at this time? And and what was Detroit like at that time? I was in Detroit. I mean, I would go, I lived. I grew up in a suburb about I don't know twenty minutes south of Detroit. Yeah, actually, not far from where the MC Five were from. I, sure. I grew up in a, a city called Trenton. They grew up in a city called Lincoln Park, which is right next mm-hmm. door. And uh, yeah, we. I'd always go to hardcore shows. I was into hardcore punk rock a lot back in the early 80s. We'd go downtown to shows. No, that was a lot of fun. That was always a lot of fun. I had to sneak out because my mom was, you know, don't go to that punk rock show. (laughs) Yeah, seriously. Was that the scene? Was it primarily punk rock stuff? There was a lot. I mean, there was so much going on, but, you know, we were kids. I mean, we did our own bands, too. I had a band in high school with some friends of mine. And uh, called the the neoplastics after the Very neoplastic nice. plasticism art movement of the twenties, and uh, <laughs> but we, but we ended we were playing Ramones covers, you know was, we were doing stuff yeah. like that, you know we were nice. just having fun. We weren't we weren't art rockers at all. <laughs> uh, no. Shout out to my high school band Torch. Okay. <laughs> so let's get the list. So we're sort of covering you growing up here, and and before we sort of skip ahead to 92 with the Beatasonics, what's the progression of the groups? So were there groups prior to the Beatasonics, and what were they? Oh, yeah, there was a, there was a band um, when I was in college. We were called The Way Outs. And, uh, Very nice. We wrote some songs. It was just a three-piece. I was playing guitar. It's a friend of mine on bass, friend of mine on drums. And we would do half originals and then half, like... I don't know, we do like these Mersey beat covers and we do these fifties 
but we do them at this blazing speeds. We play at house parties. this thing called rocket fuel that we would drink before the show and it's basically <laughs> old, that sounds terrible it's basically old, old crow old crow bourbon oh. mixed with uh, pharmaceutical caffeine and mm-hmm. coca-cola and we would do shots of this and go play and it would just be a mess and we wow. play like all these old songs but just at these blistering speeds and we did some recording we did some recordings we released a live cassette called tripping with the way outs and then we had another cassette. <laughs> so you had the original Four Loco is what you did. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, guess, I guess so, yeah. This is about 80, 1987, 88, 87. Yeah. I think you got a lawsuit on your hands. Yeah. yeah. I think my stomach just put in its two weeks notice. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm still dwelling on that wake-up juice. It's really it's really. Yeah, yeah. It, was, it worked. It worked. Yeah, as as you guys are playing blistering Jerry and the Pacemakers covers, yeah, it's really yes. a it's really a lovely uh, pastiche you've got going on there. So you got that, and then uh, anything after that prior to Beatasonics, or does it evolve into that? Yeah, you know, then uh, the bass player and I, Eric, we moved to uh, Austin, Texas, and that's where we did the Beatasonics. And I played another band. I played bass in another band down there. This guy named Herman the German. Wow, Herman Whoa. the German and and Das Cowboy, and Whoa. Herman was yeah. He's this guy from uh, Belgium, actually, and he lived in Germany. He immigrated to the U.S. in the early 70s, and uh, he would play all these like Gene Vincent songs and European instrumentals, like all these polkas, but at blistering <laughs> tempos as well. And he had a World War One cavalry outfit that he would play in and a, with a spiked helmet and everything, and then the uh, Marshall stack with an iron cross. I love this. And we would play, and he's still around. He's he's like a sanitation worker in Austin. I mean, I still keep in touch with him. Oh, we got time for one more. This is the own car, ladies and gentlemen. The lady on the back schedule, the boss man told me to stop in two minutes. I mean, I played bass for him. I saw I saw him play once. I said, I want to be your bass player. And I freaked him out. And I did become his bass player. But it was uh, Herman the German and Das Cowboy. Are we sure wow. this wasn't an art project by Werner Herzog? Like, no. It seems like some kind of Andy Kaufman-esque uh, 
thing going on there. I love it. It sounds amazing. And I would have killed to be a bass player in that band, too. It was great. I, we had a lot of fun. And then my friend Eric and I did our Beat of Sonics thing. We were trying to do some kind of, I don't, we didn't know what we were doing. We were doing some kind of power pop-ish 60s thing. I don't know. You know, we, we were still kind of figuring out what to do, basically. Tell us a little bit about that group and that first LP, Mass for Shut-Ins. That was your first official kind of release. You had co-produced and co-engineered that first LP. Given the origins of the band and the dynamic, was the producer's chair something that you naturally gravitated to there? Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, it was, you know, the other, guy, the other two guys in the band said, well, you know, you, you're kind of the musical director here. But it really was. I mean, it was just kind of a, a free-for-all. We all had our own ideas, and I wasn't sitting down as the, I'm the producer. It was never discussed like that. We just right. we just made a record, and, okay, does this sound good? Yeah. Okay, does this <laughs> sound good? Yeah. Okay. We didn't really have firm ideas at that point in our lives. <laughs> so. Right, right. <laughs> it, was, it was just sort of naturally... It just kind of happened. Yeah, yeah. It just kind of happened. Did you feel comfortable in the chair? Um, I don't think I knew what I was doing at that point in my life. <laughs> Really, um, as fair. a producer, I, I didn't really know. Uh, it was when I moved back to Michigan. I had another band back there that was just for fun called uh, the Pop Tarts, mm-hmm. and nice. I played I played guitar in that. And that was just four of us. And we would do you know some weird, obscure '60s covers, but make them all fuzzed out. And we did some recordings as well. I think uh, you can find some on my. I have a SoundCloud page. stuff called the pop tarts another band called mark lansing and his board of water and light and we just did some r and you know just kind of old 60s covers but those are a lot of fun in that studio i always felt that's where i learned what producing was Mm -hmm. that's where i kind of figured out what i was doing at that point in my life i remember it was like a light bulb went off said oh this is what to do yeah so i'd say that was probably 93 94 well you've produced uh, over 100 albums or at least pieces which include power face and the 19 wheels which is an amazing name uh back in 1995 all the way up to uh luxury flux what keeps you inspired to keep getting back into that producer's chair oh it's just i don't know when i hear a band that sounds halfway interesting it just comes to you naturally i just i hear it i think what a lot of times when I hear a band, their sound reminds me of something. It reminds me of other songs. It reminds me of pieces of other songs. It always triggers some kind of memory. It kind of gives you a direction to go. That's the way I always look at producing. It just kind of all pops in your head. Mm-hmm. And you go, oh, yeah, that. maybe I'll get that drum sound. Let's go for that drum sound in this song. Yeah. Or let's go for this guitar sound, because their song will remind me of another song. It's not like copying, sure. but it's like a little... You have like a little path to follow right. and uh, that's that's the way I look at it it's, so it's just a natural thing and it's remembering you know a lot of songs over the years just having a million songs in your head 
Sure. I got. I have a lot to. I have a lot to draw on. Put it that way. Mm-hmm. It's a skill that often musicians aspire to, much in the same way actors, you know, talk about always wanting to direct. But it's such a unique skill unto itself. I feel like that's managing talent and sort of shaping the vision a little bit and trying to mold somebody else's art into something. Yeah, of course. I think. Yeah, I, I see what you're saying. Yeah, of course. I mean, people will want to do anything they'll just say, oh i have this idea i have this idea i have this idea right and i remember when i worked with the sonics what they told me they said the best thing you did producing us is tell us what not to do mm. <laughs> right right exactly yeah <laughs> you gotta I tell said, them yeah. when they're f-ing up you know yeah, <laughs> yeah or when they're, no that's gonna that's you say no that's that's gonna sound ridiculous no you no, <laughs> right. that's turn off the chorus pedal no 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 so it's more it's a lot of times it's more no than Hey, I have this idea. <laughs> sure, I was like, no, sure. don't do that. <laughs> Did you ever look to any other producers for, like, you know, we talked about Beatles stuff. Obviously, George Martin comes to mind. But did, did you have any producer idols or anybody you looked at their work and said, yeah, I'd, I'd kind of like to do this like that? Is there Was there a thought of producing craft specifically or was it all intuition on your end? No, it's 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 intuition. It's just like it's a feel. It's like okay, uh, this reminds me of something. I'll go down this direction. I mean, sure. One guy, I was just I was just thinking about this guy the other day. I was listening to the Shangri Las, and the guy who produced the Shangri Las, Shadow Morton. Mm-hmm. His name was George Morton, but Shadow, and he produced the um, oh, what was that band? Early seventies, David Johansson, the New York Dolls. Da- yeah, uh, yeah. That's who uh, you looked it up. Yeah, yeah. New York Dolls. Yeah, it looks like. <laughs> The Vagabond Missionaries and later the New York Dolls. Yeah, yeah but um, Shadow Morton, I mean, I listen to Shangri-Las and he did some songwriting for them. And uh, yeah, I love uh, his productions. But when I'm producing a band, I don't think of other producers. Mm-hmm. I think of others. I think of sounds and what's going to work with the song and right. you know what not to do. I have to say, uh, intuition of yours is amazing because every time I see a record with your name as a credit, I know immediately it's going to have, you know, something I will like on it. And in fact, so recently that uh, I was debating whether or not to pick up a henchman record that I had seen the other day, which was three times infinity, I think it was. Oh, right. And I was kind of wavering back and forth and I was like, oh, wait, Jim's on this. I am picking this up. (laughs) And I loved that album. So uh, your intuition is spot on. And I I always know to trust it. Not always, but thanks. (laughs) (laughs) How does your approach to producing differ when you're working on your own music versus when you're working on the music of an artist you're more removed from? So like Paul was saying, you know, you're crafting something for somebody else in, in some cases, and, and it could feel, at least for me, because uh, I work in freelance art, so I do other people's ideas all the time. So a lot mm. of the time I'm trying to make sure that it'll be something they'll like, whereas if I'm working on something for myself, you know, I'll spend more time on it or do different things that I wouldn't normally try. How does your approach differ between those two things? Well, when you're working with other people, there are always some compromises that have to be made because Mm. I don't walk in there like uh, Mussolini and say, this is how it's going to be done. You're going to (laughs) follow what I say. You're going to play everything. I'm going to, you know, turn your amp on for you. I'm going to tune your guitars, you know, play this beat. Uh, it's like you okay, will play so. the tambourine now. <laughs> yeah. Exactly, Paul, as played by Herman the German. Yeah, Herman the German. <laughs> but I, you know, I, I try to work with people. I love collaborating with people. So I take, I, I want to take their ideas 
and then mix them with my ideas so we're all working together. I mean, I, you know, it's, it doesn't always, everyone's not always 100% happy. Of course not. I can't, I'm not there to please everyone. Mm-hmm. I'm there to make what I think is the best sounding record, but I want to work with people. And so it's a collaborative effort. When I'm, if I'm doing anything that's just on my own, I don't have to, I'm just working with myself. <laughs> I don't have to, yeah. you know, I can just do whatever I want and I don't have to think about time constraints. I don't have to think about a budget. I don't have to think about right. be a psychologist to four or five people <laughs> in a room together. You know, I don't like to be the psychologist to myself. Um, right. But I mean, that's a big part of, of producing is the whole psychological aspect of it is, and working with people. I'm one of those people, I think you get the best performance out of a band when everyone's comfortable, mm-hmm. uh, I'm not one of those people who, who's going to be yelling and you know threatening, and I don't think you get a good performance then. Other people have different theories. Has the situation ever come up though, where a band has requested that a piece of the song or something go into a song, and you disagreed from a producer standpoint? Yeah, I mean, I've told people before. I said, you know, I disagree with you, mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. if I say no, I don't think that's a good idea. And if they're adamant about that, you know, it's their band. Yeah. I'm not the band. Right. So, but I, I will tell them if it's something that I don't agree with. I'll say, hey, I'm just going to give you this to think about, and I'll give them the reasons why I disagree with their idea. So, just so they're aware of it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, ultimately, it's their band. Yeah. Paul? Yes. This interview's going great. Oh, I love it. And I don't know what our luck is in having so many people on the show who happen to also be huge Beatle fans. I know. It makes me so very happy because we're able to actually talk this language. It's like some (laughs) sort of secret Illuminati code that we're able to to discuss amongst people. You know, know, first Rob Jones talk about Let It Be, and now we have Jim Diamond. Uh, It's great. I kind of knew a little bit that he was a Beatle fan because there was a book I was reading, which is mostly interviews and where he talks a lot about being a big Beatle fan. You know what I found is kind of weird, though, is he really prefers the beat group era stuff. Yeah. And everything after Pepper, he sort of thinks is fine, but is, but prefers the earlier stuff. It's just interesting because I never you rarely hear people who talk about the group in that capacity. And it's not like he's being a contrarian either. It's not like he's saying, yeah, everybody likes that. It's like he just actually prefers it, which is weird because most people do prefer the psychedelic stuff over the skiffle stuff, which I have a place in my heart for both. But, you know, usually I gravitate more towards post rubber soul post revolver yeah even though those two are usually my favorites but it is interesting that he finds a home so to speak in that era of beetle right history and james i don't know if you caught in the interview here when i put in when he was talking about shocking blue their album at home i included a snippet of them opening the album at home with bull weevil oh really which was a shocker for me because I always have that in my head as that's a closer because Jack <laughs> closes with it. But but just uh, it was really cool to hear somebody else, particularly from an earlier time, particularly from a pop sensibility, covering Bull Weevil and it opens the album, which is really strange. It is strange because I, you know, in my head, I think both of us instantly think Bull Weevil is a Jack White song. You know, I, we know it's a cover, but we're like, nah, that's what he does. That's how he closes a show. Right. But um, our mutual friend uh, Scott had bought me a record and Bull Weevil was on that record. It was more of a joke gift and then it turned into something that I was actually excited to listen to. It was Homer and Jethro's Don't Be Cornfused album. <laughs> and they covered Bull wow. Weevil on there and I was like, oh my God, there you got you got your uh, your folk song in there. I mean, I guess it's no different than Turkey in the Straw, which was 
incidentally, also on that Don't Be Confused album. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So And accompanies Mr. Carl Butterball whenever he shows up. <laughs> that's right. That's all. That's He's already left. He came yeah. in, said that's right, and then left the building. Herman the German we learned about. We learned about Herman the German. Big into Herman. I'm a, I'm, I've fallen down the Herman the German rabbit hole. That snippet of that song I played from Herman the German was a live cut in, I want to say, 2007 of Herman and the band, along with Jim Diamond, performing the Munsters theme, which is pretty cool. Oh, man. Uh, so, yeah, let's so uh, good. Let's, see, let's pour one out for our buddy Herman, who I assume is still rocking someplace. But... Um, <laughs> R.I.P. Herman. Yeah, but it was, no. Maybe. Maybe. (laughs) I don't know. But I I really enjoyed hearing Jim talk about production technique and how he's not really thinking about craft. He's really just thinking about songs and sounds and throwing ideas out there and just a lot of really interesting insight into his approach, which I feel like Jack would have been a natural fit for in the studio, given Jack's sort of inherent curiosity and need for exploration within certain confines musically Mm. yeah anyway so we're gonna get back to the interview here and we got lots more to go and we're gonna cover a lot of cool stuff a lot of good jack stuff in this segment so enjoy everybody yeah let's absorb some more (laughs) you engineered and co-produced the white stripes self-titled debut album how did you get to know jack and meg i assume you're back from austin by this point in time you're you're steeped in detroit what were the circumstances that brought you guys together oh it was just hanging out you know everyone would uh go to the gold dollar this bar in detroit you've probably heard mentioned um yes yeah that's i think i saw their first show there in 98 or something or 97 i don't remember uh but yeah i saw that thanks a lot let's bore you for a couple more here um, this one's, uh, Jimmy. Let's do that. Gold Dollar and the, another place, the uh, the Magic Stick, and the Garden Bowl, right, right. and those were really close to my studio. That was you know mm. a few a few get, blocks get from yeah where yeah. the studio was. So you'd just see people and hang around, and I did some records, and I did it my I think one of the first bands I did was the the first band official release out of Ghetto Recorders was a two piece from Detroit called Bantam Rooster. Mm. Right. Yes. And that was that was the first two piece out of Detroit. Henchman record upstairs. I did half of a Henchman record uh, mm-hmm. called Motivating, and that was a live party at the studio. We had a keg of beer and we had a live party <laughs> in the studio with about fifty people. 
and uh, made that was the record, or half the record. So you just kind of knew everyone, and people would hang out, and right. You know, Didn't make work at the Garden Bowl. I think she. I think she did. Yeah, at some point. Yeah. I'm sure she did. You didn't spike that keg with uh, some some cough syrup or caffeine or anything, did you? <laughs> no, I didn't. I, uh, no, my my pharmaceutical caffeine days were long behind me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so there's a scene going on. In retrospect, they sort of call it this garage rock scene. I don't know. I, that scene that always seems a little disingenuous to me. I always think of it more as like a like a blues revival or something. Like a, like I always call it like the Stooges blues revival or something. But that scene evolved, obviously. And but by the way. It was 97, that first show. Okay. Oh, okay. Which happened to just have been released as like a sort of mini EP celebration of the 20th anniversary. But how did that scene evolve and what did it evolve from? Because I know there was that cowpunk sort of movement and things. And how did we get to the, quote, garage rock revival? I don't know. I mean, I, I came back into Detroit and started working with bands in about 95. And... I was working in another studio in a suburb, and I was doing working with a band called Bootsy X and the Love Masters. Mm-hmm. Nice. And they were doing they were doing a you know rock and roll like '60s kind of rock and roll, but doing it very well. And uh, that's where I met Mick Collins, mm. and he came in the studio to pick up a record or something from the singer. And I had just started this little studio. My I, I moved in downtown Detroit, and my friend had a little eight track reel to reel. And there were, you know, I said, hey, John, can I, you know, can I get a band up here? You know, mind if I uh, use your stuff? Right. I'm going to charge like 20 bucks an hour. I'll give you 10. I'll take 10. And um, sure. so there were bands, you know, then I saw, I saw the henchman. I don't know how it evolved, but I, I remember I saw the henchman in 96 and I went up to them and said, I want to record you guys. This is amazing because I hadn't seen bands like this. And mm-hmm. uh, I, but I don't know how they evolved. I think they were just doing what they you know, the people in Detroit, everyone, everyone I knew, they were just doing music that they liked, mm-hmm. that they what that, that they listened to, really. So much like production style, it was less a conscious effort and more of a natural sort of instinct. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it wasn't a conscious effort at all. It's people just doing records that they liked, like the Detroit Cobras. When I first saw right. them and heard their 45s that they put out in 1995 or 96, they were just doing records that they, you know, covering songs that they liked. Yeah. And that's basically what it was. No one thought about anything. Except, hey, let's make a band. Let's, uh, I like this song. Yeah, you want to do this song by Nathaniel Mayer? Okay, right. great. And it just moved on from there. You know, there's a lot of garage rock bands from Detroit that uh, New Fritz we're a part of, and that's our family, you know, so don't want to ever disgrace that or anything. If one band or a couple of Detroit bands get more successful... And it just helps everybody else get a little bit of attention that they never would have gotten in the first place, you know. Maybe it's a bad thing if someone names it a scene and it becomes some sort of hip scene or something, because that won't last, you know. So, But maybe if it's just a little bit of attention, just to know that there's good rock and roll bands from the town, that would be good. In, in any other musical scene, you know, the bands all sort of sound alike, they dress alike, they do the same things. And in Detroit, that isn't really the case, you know. 
we don't separate high energy from anything else. For us, the only it's the only kind of music, you know, high energy, or it's you know, or it's Chopin. People have speculated that it's because of the the sort of monotony of the auto plants, or it's the isolation, or it's you know the the weather, or it's the proximity to Canada. Everybody has their own little pet theory of why we like our music to be loud, <laughs> loud and hard. <laughs> it's just how we are. So did you just approach Jack and Meg and say you guys want to record a little bit, maybe put out an LP, or how did that come about? I, I don't remember really. I don't know if they got their deal with sympathy. And then Jack approached me, or if I approached him at some point, said, hey, I have this little studio. Because I think in 97, at the beginning, I was just had my buddy's 8-track and a little 12-channel mixer. And uh, then I got a 16-track and a bigger mixing board. And I don't remember if I approached them or you know he approached me after he got his thing with Sympathy. I don't, I don't remember. Okay. Was the Sympathy contact a buzz? Like, were people talking about, oh, Jack got a record deal. I mean, Long Gone John wasn't exactly, you know, Warner Music or something, but like, that must have been kind of cool that one of those oh, yeah. groups got picked up. Yeah, because I mean, our Bantam Rooster, um, Crypt Records put them out. Okay. And then Sympathy did Bantam Rooster as well, and then okay. did uh, The White Stripes, and uh, I don't remember who else he did from Detroit. Well, then he put out, Long Gone put out that uh, Sympathetic Sounds of Detroit right. uh, record, but that was later, like 2001, I think, something like that. Yeah. But um, mm, right. oh yeah, of course. If hey, you know, got a record deal. We got a, you know, it's not a, it's not a deal. It's not Warner Brothers, yeah. but it was yeah. someone paying for the record. That's amazing. Right. What did you think about? Like from what we've heard, people knew Jack from other groups. Obviously, they knew him from Two Star Tabernacle and the Go. And obviously, he had played with Goober and the Peas, and he had been doing all of these sort of oddball kind of gigs. And then suddenly, he brings you know, his girlfriend, then wife onto the stage and, and he starts making this art piece around her and they become this thing. What were your impressions of that? Were you skeptical at first or were you more like, oh, okay, that's an interesting sound? Because obviously knowing them and knowing the scene, it must have, you had a different perspective than most on that. No, I was skeptical. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I, like, right. I, I was skeptical. I'm like, what are they doing? You know, I didn't... I didn't <laughs> But uh, you know, it was it was charming. It was charming in its in its way. Sure, it was cute. You know, they had their. You know, other people weren't doing any kind of outfits. I mean, people in Detroit were more like, get on stage with the clothes you walked in with. Mm-hmm. Sure, sure. No one was wearing red and white pants or anything. Right. Um, <laughs> right. So that you know, it was it was a unique thing, and I but I thought, oh man, what the hell is she doing? She's got to learn how to play those drums. But, <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's just a natural reaction as a musician, you know. I, but it was, it was interesting. And, you know, I thought, oh, that's, you know, that's good. Yeah, they mm-hmm. skirted the line of uh, acting like kids being charming, whereas it could have really skewed into creepy real quick. But they, they managed <laughs> to keep with with charming, at least from what I could tell. Um, right, yeah, I, I agree. Like you had said, you know, Meg obviously wasn't a super professional drummer at that point, and Jack was still fairly rusty as far as uh, recording professional music is concerned. I mean, he was still quite capable, but, you know, you had pulled in some people to play on their first record, including a Soledad brother, Johnny Walker, to play slide guitar on Susie Lee and I Fought Piranhas, which wound up turning into one of like the the signature sounds of the group right right so whose idea was it to put slide on those tracks i that was discussed between the johnny and jack okay they just came in yeah johnny's gonna play some slide and you know that was just okay cool nice yeah they'd worked that out on their own 
don't know if you have any insight into this, but is it true that Johnny taught Jack slide guitar during those sessions? I never saw anything like that. Okay. Maybe when he was in town over at his house, but no, I, you know, they weren't sitting in the studio. Okay, now you do it like this, and you sound like Elmore James. No, it's not. I, I didn't see anything like that. It wasn't George Harrison learning sitar on the job, you know, kind of deal. Yeah. No, not not at all. Not that I saw. Elmore James got nothing on this baby. What was the vibe of those sessions? I mean, I think like most of their records, it was recorded fairly quickly. But what was the vibe there? Did you find Jack open to collaboration? Was he curious about technique and technology and stuff? Or were you really helming that? Well, we just, I remember we talked at times, because uh, where we we put the mic, he's like, ah, it sounds too much like it's in the studio. I said, well, you are in a studio. So <laughs> I said, all right, here's, here's what we're going to do. So I had this old tape recorder from 1953 okay. and it has an input and a little speaker Yeah, I, and, and I'd use this with uh, doing some dirt bombs I always use this little thing to sing through I said oh, let's just sing through this so that's the vocal sound on that record is singing through this little tape recorder then miking the tape recorder Wow, and I, I've done that. I've used that on a lot of records. That's like that little tape recorder is one of my secret weapons. I love that thing. sound and then the sound of the room with a heavy compression on the vocal and yeah you know jack was just singing through a 50 through like a sure 57 wow. plugged into this tape recorder then i mic the tape recorder so is that what caused the reverb because i know that album especially has a little more reverb than many of his later ones did that have anything to do with it no, well the reverb is a combination of uh i don't remember if there's any on his amp he used he had that silver tone and he had silver tone i think he had a twin mm-hmm. and then i had a spring i had what's called a spring reverb in the studio, it's a, a company called Tapco mm-hmm. from the 70s. Mm-hmm. It's a Tapco spring reverb, and that's on the, all over that record. That's that, that's that yeah. crappy reverb sound you hear. Wow, yeah. It's like the, it, instead of the wall of sound, it, it, it sometimes comes across as like the wall of noise, but in like a good way. In like, yes, in, like, because in a good way. I feel like your task in that situation was largely, how do I fill out this sound? Because they had been playing at that point, I guess, for about a year or so, maybe a year and change. But, you know, Meg is very much still learning on that first record. So I I imagine that you would have had to have found places to either embellish or craft what the overall sound of the thing was going to be, you know? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, I was trying to make uh, the drum sounds be as... It's kind of, they had a big room to work in, mm-hmm. the studio back in Detroit. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I had used a lot of ambient miking to kind of like just make everything big and trashy, but still have a lot of, sure. have, have the bottom, have the, have a good bottom. Cause there's just a two piece, but you know, I'd worked with two pieces before. So I, it was kind of fun to do it that way. Yeah. 
I had read that uh, that there was a school bell used on one of the tracks. Is, do you remember which one that was? Was that Broken Bricks? Yeah, that had the ding, da, ding, da, ding, da, ding, yeah. ding, 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 ding. Yeah, yeah. Okay. A, yeah this, that was this bell that Jack brought over. He said, "Now I want to put a bell on here." I said, "Okay." <laughs> <laughs> now, Meg, I want you to play this bell like a caveman. When you mentioned you had a 16 track to record on, did he tell you to subtract 15 of them so that he could have a single track to record on? Yeah, I mean, the bell is on its own track. Yes, of course. Okay. <laughs> Before we go away from the album here, do you have any other memories of what that experience was like? And were you happy with the final product when it was finally all finished and mixed and everything? Did you listen to that and go, I have something here? Or was it still more like a curiosity as to the trajectory of that band? Oh, no, no. When, yeah, as, as we were making it, yeah, I thought, yeah, this is, this is sounding really good. Sure. You know, it was just, it was just the, the tracking was a little tedious because at times, you know, Meg would drop a stick, <laughs> she'd get off time, you know, that, that, took, that was the most time-consuming part, was just getting through the basics, because they, they would play the basic parts live in the studio, the guitar and the drums, mm-hmm. and I think we did some vocals live as well. If you, if you listen to some of the things I can, I think they just, I had a little PA system in the studio, and I think Jack sang some vocals through the PA, and then overdub the vocals later, so you can hear a little bit of a ghost in the background, um, wow. just bleeding through the room mics. I, I can hear it because I know what I'm listening for. Yeah. But, right. Yeah. <laughs> After the album was finished, or even during, did you have any contact at all with Long Gone John from Sympathy? Because he seems like a guy whose reputation precedes him, and people would (laughs) would definitely have some stories about. So I don't know if you had any memories or anything about dealing with him. (laughs) No, I I always I always loved Long Gone. He was he was great. He's like you know this eccentric curmudgeon, (laughs) but I I always I got along with him great. I was dating a woman in Los Angeles in 2000. So I'd go out there, and she knew Long Gone as well. So I ended up at a Sizzler once in <laughs> of Long Beach with Long Gone. Because I think he lived in Long Beach. Yeah, I think yeah, we were at a Sizzler. We, like, we had a double date. There was this, this woman and I and Long Gone and whoever. I don't remember who he was with. But uh, yeah, we had a double date at the Sizzler in Long wow. Beach. And it was just funny. I mean, he, he had his, I don't know if he had a wig on or what. <laughs> but he was a funny guy, and I always got along with him well. I haven't seen him in years and years, but um, yeah. only only good memories. He, That's good. he never crossed me. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he seems like a like a sort of a lovable criminal or something. Like, he seems like the kind of guy, he's like, he's always got a scheme going, but he's like, ah, oh, look at it, like... He seems like a, like a savvy Shaggy from Scooby Doo or something. Like, uh, yeah, yeah, that's. A, there's a great documentary about him. That's that's just eye opening. I haven't. No, I haven't seen. I have to look for this. I haven't seen this. Yeah, it's called The Treasures of Long Gone John. Available now on Amazon, and I highly recommend it to everybody. Uh, okay, I will. I will look for this. I want to see this. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. Really cool to hear about the White Stripe stuff. I was a little sad that. 
you know, there weren't any super memorable moments that he was able to directly point at, but still really cool to hear about the recording of that first album and how it all went down. It seemed like it went by in a blur, almost. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of the vibe I got, because whenever you, like, the interviews I've seen from him, they don't really deviate too much from what we talked about a little bit. Like, uh, it sounds like it was just sort of a fast session and something you know, that was just an everyday sort of occurrence and no one at the time had really any conception that it was going to be this historical occasion, mm-hmm. uh, at, at the very least within certain circles. In fact, Jack himself, it's funny, I was, during the uh, editing of the interview, I was watching a, I want to say a Dutch or German TV special recorded around the time of White Blood Cells prior to them getting picked up by Warner Brothers. So it's after White Blood Cells came out, but while they were still with Sympathy. Yeah. And Jack says in the interview, I'll play a little bit of it here. Be afraid to lose control? I don't think so. I don't think it'll it'll be that. I don't think that this band is ever going to be that big, you know? I saw it for two people to get even this attention. That's pretty amazing, a two-piece band from Detroit to get some sort of attention like that. So I don't think it's ever going to be big, like we're going to be playing arenas or anything like that. It just couldn't, you know, you can't. We, we don't write songs that are going to be, you know, top 40 hits or anything like that. As you can hear, Jack says, like, yeah, we're not going to be famous. Like, this is as famous as we're going to get. Yeah. We, we, we don't write songs for arenas, you know. it's So no one really was thinking about it. You know, no one was thinking in those terms. I find that fascinating. Yeah, I think that special also has their tour manager, who is also Jack's, like, Uncle, uh, oh, Arthur Dotweiler is in that is in that special. Yeah. Yes, very good special. If none of you have seen it, it's I can't remember the exact name of it either. But yeah, it's like a Dutch Detroit rock documentary that kind of focuses in on the White Stripes a little bit. Yeah, it's called uh, VPRO Detroit Music Scene Documentary. It's it is a Dutch thing. It was uh, that's the Dutch television station it aired on. But uh, anyway, you can find that on YouTube. You should definitely check it out. Thanks to Brian Walter on Twitter, at BMWalt, for tweeting that at us. I had actually just watched it that day. Anyway, really cool learning about the scene. And, you know, when you listen to the Gories and when you listen to the bands that were sort of leading up to that 96, 97 garage boom, there is a pretty natural evolution, you know? It doesn't really... I mean, Jim says it didn't, he felt like the scene didn't evolve, it just sort of appeared, but I feel like it was just sort of there. It was there already in the zeitgeist in Detroit at that time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it just hadn't gained a notoriety quite yet and was kind of bubbling and simmering in, inside of Detroit for the most part. Right. When it actually became popular, it seemed like it had just appeared, but it had, yeah. you know, it had a lot of build up to it also. I mean, even like the, the Stooges and, and all of them, their sound is different, obviously, and more polished, but even that's, you know, you could see the roots mm-hmm. of a lot of the music coming up with them, and it was there for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, also interesting that Jim has sort of made a career out of working with two piece artists, uh, Bantam Rooster, and later we'll talk about some of the more modern acts that he's been producing, The Devils, who which, which are also two-piece, so that was interesting, too. And I love that whenever anyone talks about Long Gone John, James, they always talk about him with warm memories. Whenever, <laughs> like, their faces sort of light... If we're on a video chat, especially, you could see their face sort of light up. This is now, I want to say... I think this is the second person that we've talked to about Long Gone in an interview that knew him. And I... I got I really want to talk to this man. I really do. <laughs> Something tells me he doesn't want to talk to us, but yeah, I I would love to talk to Long Con John. I did send him another email. I really hope he answers this time. I feel like the answer will be, go away. 
<laughs> Quite possibly, yeah. So that was really cool. And James, uh, we got a lot more to go here, and so we're going to get to this last bit of interview here. But we hope you've been enjoying it, and you know, there's some really, really cool stuff at the end here. So uh, enjoy. Yeah, please. Let's get back to it. You and the Stripes, that relationship, I mean, you really put a big stamp on their initial sort of sound there. Were you surprised at all of the direction that they would wind up going? Did you keep up with Jack's records as they were coming out? What's your take on the evolution of that band? It's what's natural to me, you know, if they, they got really popular, so great, you know, good for them. Right. Um, but yeah, it was just like a natural thing. I'm most, you know, people were happy for them that they, they got the success they did. Right, right. You know, uh, yeah, sound-wise, their evolution, I mean, I never... I'd, I'd hear, I'd hear, you know, the popular songs mm, on their later sure. records, and that was about it. But you know, it seemed like a normal progression to me. Right. Yeah. Well, speaking of popularity, there, I mean, there was a big focus on Detroit at that time, and not just with the quote garage rock scene, but also with you know, like right around the turn of the millennium, you had Eminem out of there, you had Kid Rock out of there, you had a lot of different people blowing up in a very mainstream sort of way, and other project you worked on much in the same way. For instance, Danger High Voltage by the Electric Six, which you produced and play saxophone on, the aforementioned saxophone from earlier. <laughs> yep, yep. <laughs> uh, do, you, uh, do you have any standout memories uh, to share about that session? I think we did that in uh, one night or something. Because it was, it, was, it, was <laughs> it was a 45 for uh, a, my, my friends uh, Andy and Patty uh-huh. had a label in Ypsilanti, Michigan called Flying Bomb. Sure, sure. Mm-hmm. And it was, a 45, it was a 45 for Flying Bomb. Oh wow! Yeah, that was the. I mean, if you have that, go look for that forty-five. Yeah, You'd probably press like a hundred. Sure. Um, yeah. I'm <laughs> very familiar with the Flying Bomb Christmas records, but now I will definitely oh, yeah. look out for the Electric Six stuff, which I didn't know was on there. Yeah, that was just like that was just supposed to be a joke, um, <laughs> and came over because I, I was recording the Electric Six back when they were the Wild Bunch. Mm-hmm. We did a bunch of recordings at that point in the early two thousands, and. Uh, yeah, and then I don't know how the saxophone came up, and I had, my roommates had a saxophone. I said, oh, well, you know, I can play this. Okay. And then they said, oh, what do you want? To, we're going to credit you as Bill Clinton. I said, I'd fine. Because it was just a joke. It was just a joke. It was going to be a 45 with 100 <laughs> copies pressed. And I don't yeah. remember what the flip side of the 45 is. But, yeah, I mean, they just, uh, yeah, it was literally done in an evening. And then I probably mixed it the next morning. High voltage when we touch. When we kiss Danger, danger High voltage When we cut When we kiss When we touch Danger, danger High voltage When we touch When we kiss Danger, danger High voltage When we touch When we kiss When we touch When we kiss They seem like a pretty well-humored band. I mean, also on that album that Danger High Voltage appears on, Gay Bar is also on there, which is a fantastic song as well, and definitely well-humored for sure. But yeah, I definitely enjoy that band and enjoy that song in particular, to which the saxophone plays a huge role in, which is great. It's great. (laughs) 
Well, I, try, I, I tried my hardest. I think the B-side is, I lost control of my rock and roll. Oh, that could be. Yeah, I remember that. I don't remember any details about it, but I remember I remember the name. But yeah, I remember that song, or the, the Danger, Danger, High Voltage. I remember shortly after Flying Bomb released it, I was on tour with the Dirt Bombs, and we were in the UK. We were in England. Mm-hmm. And people said, oh, yeah, they're playing this in clubs over here. They're playing this <laughs> in dance clubs. I said, really? <laughs> and yeah, that's how, that's basically how the Electric Six got their, got their, you know, all of a sudden, because the white stripes were taken off and then this happened. And that was becoming this club hit. Because I remember talking yeah. to people in London. They said, oh, you did that? You did that? Who's Bill Clinton? I said, I'm Bill Clinton. <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, I, I no, wish it, I'd used my real name. <laughs> Speaking of pseudonyms, uh, yeah, well, Jack White's singing voice has been described often as a rock and roll Ethel Merman. Um, that is him on there, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, okay, I mean, okay, yeah, yeah, okay. Doing some, I don't know, we just, they just sang it, he and Tyler, and just sang it, and that was that. Okay, great. He's in full Merman. He's gone the full Merman on that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember. Yeah, <laughs> yeah the Electric Six. You never go full Merman. In in interviews, uh, they never claim it's Jack White, but they claim that it could be. Uh, so it's always like, well, we're pretty sure. Um, <laughs> I will tell you that it is. Okay, great. Exclusive here, folks. Um, yeah, it's yeah. exclusive. You mentioned the Dirt Bombs, which you joined in 1997, and you stayed with that group for a lot of years, actually. Was joining that band a, a natural fit? How was playing with the Dirt Bombs? Well, that was... Uh, I met Mick in 96 when I was working at this other studio in Detroit. And then when I met him there, I said, hey, you know, I have this little 8-track set up in downtown Detroit in this big cement room. Mm-hmm. Um, do you want to, you know, I'll charge you like 25 bucks an hour. And he had some money. He's like, yeah, I got to do a Dirt Bombs record. He had to do the first Dirt Bombs record, which is called uh, Horn Dog Fest. And so he came down and we did it on eight on an eight on this eight track. So we had like one drum set on one track, the other drum set on another track, then the fuzz bass, the regular bass and the guitar, and then a track for vocals and percussion or whatever. And then he and I got to be, you know, I got to, we got to be friends just doing that record. And then uh, the bass player left, he moved to San Francisco. And mm. so after that, then Mick said, oh, you want to play? I said, yeah, man, I'll play bass. <laughs> so that's just, just happened. Nice. So we started doing some gigs and yeah, just kind of evolved from there. And then, uh, so basically, on all those recordings, like the band would come in and play, and then Mick and I would finish everything. <laughs> the, no, sure. the band was never there. I would just mix it by myself. Right. You know, it was just the band would come in, play. We do we do most of it live, and then everyone would leave, and then Mick would come over, and then we'd overdub whatever. It'd just be so. It was mostly he and I. We'd finish everything. Yeah. And, uh, right. So it's always he and I collaborating on that stuff, which it was a lot of fun. Oh, 
Talk about dream jobs, like just you being able to play with a band and then craft a piece of art from it afterwards with another like-minded musician. That sounds like a blast. <laughs> oh yeah, we had yeah, we had a lot of fun because it would just we'd just come up with an idea. Let's try this. Let's try that. Just like right. let's put the mic through this crappy amp. Let's use this, <laughs> you know, radio at this point. Like you know, it was just it was just Mick and I messing around. Yeah, you know, having fun. It's like a good ideas time, though. You know, a lot of inspiration from like-minded artists being bounced around. The Dirt Bombs had, you know, somewhat of a revolving cast. I had read that Patrick Keeler had played a stint with them. Did did your pads ever cross? You know, I remember Patrick, but yeah, I don't. I we never played together. Mm-hmm. I don't okay. know. Uh, I don't know when he. Maybe he did at some point, but I, I, I don't remember. Mm-hmm. He's quite a drummer, Patrick. We we love Patrick. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. He was a good drummer, definitely. Him and Jack Lawrence. They went with a different sound for Detroit at the time, it seems. But the Dirt Bombs always, to me, had a very quintessential Detroit sound for that time. I feel like it's a yardstick for what music was happening at the sure. at that time. Sure. Um because they're still ongoing as far as I know and the music keeps evolving and changing. It's, I find it interesting. I always liked listening to to different Dirt Bombs records cuz you can tell the musical progression. Well, yeah, cuz everything we we always did everything as a different approach to every. I I I preferred actually when when uh, I was doing stuff with the Dirt Bombs, I preferred all the singles that we did cuz they were all just different and fun and i mean we did a cover we did a Bee Gees cover for an australian <laughs> tour 45 i said hey Meg, wow. hey, let's do a, i started a joke and i said yeah, I'll, I'll play uh, i'll play acoustic and you i played acoustic guitar and uh, mix i'm singing the chorus through a leslie organ speaker and you know it's just ridiculous and that's was the fun part about it i started to cry which started the whole world laughing But if I'd only seen That the joke was on me I know the appetite for Detroit music at that point was really high in Europe, especially Germany and Belgium and some Scandinavian countries. Did you do a lot of touring over there, or did you typically stay stateside? Oh, no, no, no. We went to... Uh, I had a lot of fun touring in Europe. I remember the first time I went with the Dirt Bombs, we went to this club in uh, Groningen, Holland, mm-hmm. and that was 98. And they flew us over for the... Mm. They, they remodeled the club, they had a reopening... And they flew the dirt bombs over just for one gig. <laughs> wow! Yeah, that was wow. the first. Uh, yeah, they, we flew over for one gig, and then I stayed over. You know, stayed in Europe. I'm like, wow, I'm in Europe, and uh, I'll <laughs> stay for stay for five more days. Mm. But yeah, they flew us over right. there just to play one gig, and then yeah, we went back, and um, yeah, it was always a lot of fun. Went to Australia. I went to Australia with them two times, and uh, that was a blast. And yeah, the European tours, and always good time. Very good. 
Moving to another band entirely, The Go, their album What You Doing, as well as their unreleased Free Electricity album, they were recorded and engineered by you at Ghetto Recorders. How did you meet that band and or Bobby Harlow? He seems to share a lot of common musical influence with you, for sure, as far as classic 60s pop and that sort of stuff. Oh, yeah, you guys are both Beatle yeah. guys, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that was just one of those things, you're just hanging out. I remember seeing The Go's first uh, show at the Magic Stick. Mm-hmm. I think Bobby shaved his eyebrows and had a dog collar on. (laughs) (laughs) Seriously. <laughs> that seems like him uh, yeah, from everything no. I've read. Uh, he he seems like the type of person to do that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So at first I thought, oh man, this is a little put on. But you know, it, I enjoyed doing those. I remember, yeah, because Jack was in the band on the first record. Yeah. And so Matt Smith was actual the, the producer, mm-hmm. and so Jack was doing all his all his solos. He's playing all the solos live as the band's recording. And then Jack says, well, I want to go back and overdub my solos. And then Matt said, no. You're, Matt said, no, you're not overdubbing the solos. Those were great. And they got in a fight about it. Oh, my God. Because he, well, he he's like, well, I didn't, pl- I didn't play them very well. And uh, I don't remember how we resolved that, but yeah, he, he played all the solos live. Side. That is a tradition that continues with him to all the way up to his most recent records. So we talked to um, Fats Kaplan and Dominic Davis about his Lazaretto album, and Fats has this great story of where Jack is like, "Hey, I want you to play this fiddle solo," and Fats is like, "Great, does the fiddle solo?" He's like, "All right, now overdub it, do it again on top of your old one." And Fats is like, "What are you talking about? That was completely off the cuff." He's like. Don't care. Do it. It's going to be great. So that's a, that's a tradition that continues. He wanted to replace what he played. Oh, just completely yeah, replace it? Yeah, completely replace it. And the producer, Matt, said, no, you, it's captured great. It sounds great. Perfect. I don't want you to touch this. And he, didn't, he wanted to redo the solo to make it perfect. The perfection might be why he wanted to redo it. He's like, if it sounded perfect, yes, I can't exactly. have that. Well, that was, yeah, that, was, that was Matt's interpretation of perfect. But I only had a 16 track. Because I said, hey man, you know, we can't only have so many tracks here. Yeah. So we can't be overdubbing guitar solos all day long. But I don't remember how it was resolved. It sounds like there was a little bit of, I mean, obviously we know what happened with Jack and the Go. He, he was let go. Was there any visible friction between him and the group? And that, or, or did it ever appear as though they were of a like mind and he was the X factor in that? Or were they playing as more of a cohesive unit? We're not trying to start rumors either. Yeah, no, no, no. no. I'm just curious. Yeah. No, it seemed like the, um, the Go was more obsessed with that whole 60s, late 60s, early 70s sure. hard rock kind of thing. And I don't, my impression was Jack wasn't as, oh my God, this has to be like 1971. Yeah, you know right. we have to sound like right. we have to sound like uh, the Pink Fairies. You know he wasn't. Yeah. I never got that impression. He was more like this has to sound like 1931, <laughs> right? <laughs> but yeah, my impression when he left the band was that I don't know this. Was just just what it seemed like to me. Like 
he was, uh, you know, the white stripes were getting more popular, so he had to make a choice. That's the way it seems. Uh, like, from all of the things I've read and all the research I've done over the go in them, it seems like that's the case. It seems like a more natural split because Jack's leanings were away from that band and more on the white stripes and, and Meg. Yeah, yeah. And so it's, it seemed kind of, like, natural, but... I mean, I'm I'm glad there's no animosity between anybody and and everybody's still cool, especially because I love both the Go and Jack White music separately and also together. Because uh, I do love some good '70s esque rock. You know, I love I love T Rex and I love Mark oh, Boland, so I I'm, I always have room in my heart for that. But I also have room in my heart for like Paul said, 1931. That's cool too. Uh, yeah, me too. <laughs> did Sub Pop ever interject while you were producing that album? Like, I know that they had a hand in some of the sound of it. In fact, they told Bobby and John at some point that they wanted to use the demo records, or at least uh, that's what Bobby and John had said in interviews, that they wanted to use some of the demo recordings instead of the the professional recordings. Did that ever come across your radar? Or Well, yeah, I remember, yeah, I think that I haven't, I haven't heard that record in so long, but I think, you know, part of the record is recordings that were done at Jack's house. Hmm. And is, I think part of the record is, and I, I mixed them, because we did the whole record in the studio, and then I forgot all about this. Yeah, then Sub Pop liked some of the demos better. Mm-hmm. So part of the record actually is the de- I can't tell you what songs is it's, it's been so long but some of those songs are definitely recorded at Jack's house with Matt Smith and then we just uh, I think we mixed them at my studio. Wow, yeah, I, that's pretty awesome knowing that Matt Smith was in the mix that's pretty cool. Oh yeah, yeah. I read that and uh, was taken aback because Sub Pop was obviously a bigger label so them requesting something that sounded a little grittier yeah they wanted the noisier right. they, they i don't remember why because i obviously i never spoke to anyone at sub pop myself but uh yeah they wanted something that was uh, some of the demos so yeah, yeah definitely i don't know which ones though yeah maybe they were trying to recapture the nirvana kind of vibe or something i'm not quite sure but possibly yeah i know it was a gamble for them to to take on the go to begin with at least according to their focus groups and market research and stuff <laughs> yeah, pro- <laughs> yeah pro- probably <laughs> So Jack is back in Detroit with the Cass Corridor shop and now Third Man Pressing out there. We just spoke to a group that pressed their first 45 on Third Man Pressing. So we're happy to see uh, you know, more of a focus coming back onto Detroit. And Do you have any impressions of what the music scene's like now and how it's changed at all? You know, I'm, I'm really not sure because I haven't, I haven't been there. When I, you know, I go back, it's, it's for a few weeks. Sure, And sure. usually when I'm, I'm back there, I, I work a lot. Mm-hmm. I, I work in a studio. Mm-hmm. I I still I get bands in the studio, so I don't know what the best bands are in Detroit right now. Obviously, because I just don't spend a whole lot of time there. Sure. So I can't. I know. I know the Detroit bands. Or I think bands everywhere. I'm sure they go in waves, and we have. You'll have your periods where it's very active, like you know the late '90s and the early 2000s of Detroit. Then it kind of fell off. And now I'm sure something's. I'm sure something's bubbling in there. Mm. I just don't know exactly what. <laughs> well, hey, I think James and I uh, agree. We could talk to you for another four hours just about music and, and all this. But but we we really appreciate you being so gracious with your time and for joining us today. It was an honor to talk to you. Uh, I was yes, you were such an influential force in the music that James and I love so much. So. We want to thank you for all that you've done and for all that you'll continue to do and for talking to us today, Jim. Thank you. Yeah. Oh, well, thank you very much. No, that means a lot. Thank you. My pleasure. (laughs) Is there anything you want to uh, tease or plug 
plug or anything like that? Uh, do you have anything coming down the pipeline as far as producing or recording? Well, I got a, uh, there's a band I worked over here with from Naples, Italy, on their second record. There's their label over here. I don't know if you guys know this label out of uh, Switzerland called Voodoo Rhythm. Um, no. But I just did a, I just did a record for, uh, two records for Voodoo Rhythm, uh, a band called The Devils. Hmm. And it's another, another two-piece, a guy and a, a, guy and a girl. A couple, the girl, the girls on drums. Sure. They didn't, they didn't, they didn't plan it, but they're much more over the top than the White Stripes. It's kind of insane. They dress up as a priest and a nun. Oh my god. Oh yeah, it's it's and every, all the songs are about. There's one song called uh, Coitus Interruptus from a Priest. And, uh, you know, yeah, look up the Devils. Yeah. Their, their record's coming out December 15th. I just been there's another good band I, I mix a lot of stuff from people sending me stuff from all over the world and uh, another band I really like out of uh, Melbourne Australia called the Pink Tiles it's very cool. very poppy poppy reverby Nice. So you mentioned a website earlier where people can find all your stuff. What is that again for for our listeners? Well, there's a there's a thing on SoundCloud. You can look up Jim Diamond. It's just songs of me. They're just okay. my recordings of <laughs> my, myself and bands. I've been in just a, a, some an assorted uh, assortment of uh, personal recordings on uh, Jim Diamond SoundCloud. Mm. So the Jim Diamond anthology will be called the Songs of Me. <laughs> yeah, I just haven't recorded anything. I got I got to make a new one. I'm I'm long overdue. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, we look forward to it. Hey, thank you again, Jim. Keep doing what you're doing. Keep making great music. And thank you again for joining us today. Hey, guys. Thanks for having mm-hmm. me. Awesome. And we'll get back to the show. First of all, thank you, Jim, again for joining us. It was so great having you on the show. Just a thrill to talk to you. Yeah, and super interesting stories and very nice guy. And yeah, we were very thankful for you coming on the show, Jim. Thank you so much. And uh, thank you for sharing all this yet-to-be-discovered information for me and Paul. Uh, (laughs) For one, as a huge Go fan, it was really cool to hear some of the stories about the Go's first album, What You Do, and recorded partially at Jack's house, which we had no idea of prior to this. I mean, I'm sure the information was out there, but Mm -hmm. yeah, some of those demos that were uh, the catalyst for Sub Pop hearing the go were recorded at jack's house with jim diamond super super cool 
stuff there. Sounded like a lot of recording happened in that house. The aforementioned documentary we were talking about, they, they go into that house and it's kind of interesting in there. It's, you know, I don't know if it was set up for the cameras that way, but there's all the peppermint stuff everywhere and they're, they're in full white stripes mode, you know. They had been, although it's kind of funny, they had been at it for about five years or four years at that point. So yeah, they were seeming to double down on the gimmick. Yeah. It seems like they were well in their own worlds, in their own heads, and trying their best to, you know, make a vision board and uh, manifest these things <laughs> into reality. Right, right. And speaking of manifesting into reality, I really manifested some love from Susanna for, for the Electric Six after this episode because I got so into blaring Danger High Voltage that uh, I, uh, I put it on while we were decorating the Christmas tree last night. And, um, and I think it's Susanna's new favorite music video. But really cool hearing stories of that. And we have official confirmation it is Jack. Obviously, it's Jack. But yeah, we heard it from the source. We had never heard any interviews or anything that said definitively from someone who was there that it was him. <laughs> uh, we have a lot of double talk and a lot of, yeah, it was this guy who won a contest or whatever. You know, it was... Nothing yeah. definitive, but now we have proof. The world's going to know, Paul. I'm going to take this podcast, going to put it on a flash drive, I'm going to mail it to all the major news sources. They're all going to know now. Yeah. Um, I mean, when you hear it, it's pretty obviously him. But when you're watching that music video, it's a little, it's it throws you because the woman. Anyway, uh, so yeah, thank you again, Jim. It was a wonderful interview, and we are we're just honored to have uh, spoken with you. And we we hope to continue listening to all the great stuff you've got in store. I took a listen to the Pink Tiles, James and the Devils. Mm -hmm. They're both awesome. I encourage everybody go out there, check out the Pink Tiles, check out the Devils. I'll include some links uh, in the show notes on our WordPress and Facebook pages. Yeah. So check those out. And yeah, we're going to get into some shout outs here, James, of uh, some new listeners to the show. What do you say? Yeah. And the offer stands, by the way, Jim, if you ever want to come back on the show, even to discuss uh, pink tile stuff, devil stuff, anything you want to discuss, you're always welcome back on the show. Thank you so much again. Yeah. Let's get into these shout outs now, Paul. Yeah. So we got some new people interacting with us on social media. We have Joan Whaley. We've got Josie Barizo. We've got Asteria Buhale. We've got Stella Alejado. Stella! Got... Yeah, that's sick. Sick pull. <laughs> I did it. Yeah, we've got Jane Lariosa. We've got Francis Burnaby. Prince Ralkar Abdallah. We got uh, just so many people here. Ooh, Hazel Indita. That's, that's a pretty nice name. I very much like that. So anyway, thank you everybody for interacting with us there. Mm -hmm. And uh, James, we've got some return listeners, some of our usuals to the show as well. We've got our day in, day out people we can count on shout outs here. We have, I see you over there, Eileen Corsano. You're over there. I see you with Andre Ice Cold Lyman, who is also there, and me oh my, what, my oh me, it's me oh my right there too. And keeping us on those rails is Jeremy Riles, as well as the bones of the operation, Kate McCoy, and the heart of the operation, Amy Hart. And we can't forget about our third person in spirit, always the wonderful Callie Durga. Thank you so much, Callie, and the punk rock queen, Adrian King. Don't forget about that red, red rain, rain prosper, and ha, it's LOL two point. Followed by S.A. Franco. What does that even mean? And we're Wilkin on Sunshine with Yvette Wilkins. Uh, we've got Eric Andrew Dodson over there. And we can't mm -hmm. forget about David Poe. Poe, 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 Poe. Po. 
I would also like to submit for the approval of the Midnight Society that we add <laughs> two more. Oh, God. James. <laughs> I would like, I think we should add two more. All right. We're going to be adding Brennan Smith. Sure. The the Bren Smith, like it's like a blacksmith. No? Mm, don't love it. Have the, the red, white, and blacksmith. It's, nah. The Bren, Brennan. Nah, nah. Bye, Brennan. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> and then Brian Walter. Um, Walter White. Is that anything? Did I say anything? <laughs> you, you said the name of a TV character. Yeah. Uh, Is that anything, um, though? Like the Walter White Stripe? The Bryans of the operation. Ooh. It's like saying brains, <laughs> but mixed up. We'll workshop those. Anyway, we've got uh, some social media for everybody to check out. If you want to follow us on Facebook, you go to facebook.com slash thirdmen. Twitter, at thirdmencast. Tumblr is thirdmenpodcast.tumblr.com. You can visit where we host the show, thethirdmen.wordpress.com. You can shoot us an email, thirdmenpodcast at gmail.com. You can visit our Spreaker page. That's the iHeartRadio app where we host the show, which is Spreaker, S-P-R-E-A-K-E-R. You can also visit us on YouTube. And find some animations there, which James does, which are very good. And please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. It really helps the show. And I was reading some of those today. And boy, there are a lot of people who wrote some very nice reviews of our show, James, on iTunes. We're really, really grateful for them. And uh, if you haven't done that, it does really help. So if you could just go on iTunes and just do a quick, it takes five seconds, just quick rate review and uh, subscribe. It would be really appreciated. So thank you, everybody, who did that. And we encourage everyone to do it if you haven't done so already. Yeah, it definitely helps get the word out about our show and to any interested parties mm-hmm. who might want to listen. So, yes, thank you to those who have already rate, reviewed and subscribed and uh Anybody else who'd like to, we'd be forever in your debt. If you have any listener questions, feel free to email those to us. I don't know if you had already said this, Paul, but yeah, we're doing a listener's questions episode soonish, probably in the next couple months. So if you want to have anything answered either about us or about White Stripes or about something that you want us to look into instead of you looking into it, uh, please feel free to email those to us. And as always, Paul, I'd like to thank Sam Kubert and Tom Valenti for the help with our theme song, We're the Third Men, and to the wonderful Susanna Roundtree for the intros and outros to our program. Thanks again to Jim Diamond for joining us today. It was awesome chatting with you, and we're just really fortunate and lucky that you agreed to do so. So thank you again. And James, I think until next episode, I will be looking for a home in a recording studio where I can find my snare finally. (laughs) And as always... I'll be looking for a home in the recording booth to turn up your snare. Okay, thank you, James. And we'll see everybody in two weeks. (laughs) Bye. Bye. For more information or to contact the show, visit thethirdmen.wordpress.com or email at thirdmenpodcast at gmail.com. Also visit at thirdmencast on Twitter and search The Third Men on Facebook. See you next time. I was going to say let's do it from the top, but that's fine. Yeah. Um, yeah.
I have nothing to add to that. All right, well. Wow. That's nice. That's awesome, man. That's like that's like the making of a of a romantic comedy or something. <laughs> something I, I love it. Yeah. Let's go. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> R-E-A-K-E-R. Well, my contact has now gone into the complete left side of my eye, and I can no longer see in my left eye. So that's good. Do you need a break, James? No, I'm good. Just gonna not. Just gonna not see for a while. It's good to know that uh, it's good to know we got a beetle guy on the line. Very much appreciated. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. But uh, this is a Jack. Hold on one second. (laughs) I thought it was part of the bit. I thought it was part of the bit. (laughs) Butter on it. I don't think we want it. It makes it shiny and stuff on top <laughs> you could probably take the pie out of the oven yeah that's okay yeah you can <laughs> bye bye alright the sound of mutant blues is that it? that's a book uh, have you ever crossed paths with someone by the name of Bruce Brand from the Milkshakes? Oh yeah, I know Bruce. Oh okay. Yeah. We had talked to him a couple months back actually, and I, I think he brought your name up. No, yeah, he's great. Last time I saw him was in a few years ago at a show in uh, Paris. Mm-hmm. And uh, no, he, he's a great guy, great drummer. Yeah, the Masonics have a new album out, and it sounds awesome. No, I haven't heard it yet. I'll have to look yeah. for that. All right, fantastic interview, fantastic, fantastic. Uh, anyway, bad joke, Oof. man. Oof. Jim is is gonna listen to this. Cut that one out. Uh, <laughs> yep. Uh, so. In the mouth of a bear. I, I'm fixated on bears for some reason. Um, Early 70s, David Johansson. Um, to Google. Uh, what's that? <laughs> I'll remember it. Yeah. <laughs> but. Um, uh, the Skype lag is killing me. Yeah, uh, Mr. Jim Diamond is on. Uh, and Paul, I'm gonna need you to turn up the bear. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> um, it's been minus the bear this whole oh. time. We're gonna have to get it turned up. All right, thanks, Jim, so right. much. And enjoy the show tonight. Yeah, I will. I will. Somebody, I'm gonna get it going pretty soon. But yeah, have a good day, you guys. Thanks for having me.
got both my eyes. I can see again. I can see again. It's a miracle. I don't have to become blue singer anymore. Oh, Paul left. Call dropped.